Um, so this is Madhumita Mantri. I'm a product lead at Startree, which is an early stage B2B startup in Bay Area. And I'm focused on working on real-time analytics and anomaly detection space. And the product thinking as such and building products that user loves is a passionate area for me. And I wanted to learn a lot. And I came, uh, I met Nancy over LinkedIn. And then I saw interesting post by her. And she's also part of Korea community. And I have seen her uh, like course curriculum and it excited me a lot. And then I reached out to her uh, to talk about this topic uh, and um, very excited that she agreed to speak in this forum and welcome Nancy. I'll pass it on to you to introduce yourself. Uh, what's your career journey and something not on your LinkedIn profile? Oh, that's a great question. Um, hi, everybody. I'm super excited to be here because this is my very first audio event uh, live on, on LinkedIn. Also, I see Elena listening. Just want to say hi. It's always great to see a familiar face. Um, something that is not on my LinkedIn. I am a mom. I don't know if that's on my LinkedIn. And my daughter is in first grade. And I am one and done. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me something about your career, like what, what your career journey looked like and what made you to become my PM coach and mentor. That sounds exciting. would love to hear more. Yeah. Uh, before shifting and pivoting into full-time coaching, I was director of product at Roku. And before that, I was a PM manager at Meta, um, and I was at Meta for over six years. Uh, and before Meta, I was at startups as well as big companies. Uh, I started my career as an engineer and about four-ish years into that, I decided to pivot into product management and have been um, in product ever since. I started my career in 2006. So I've been doing this for a while. Awesome. That sounds very promising and uh, very excited to learn from you about this topic, uh, product thinking, the power to build products that you just love. And I'm sure we will uh, learn a lot from based on your experience at Meta, Roku, and now you've been a PM coach and mentor. Very exciting. So with that, I'll kick off. I'll quickly uh, mention to audience I have a set of questions on this topic, uh, primarily in the area of foundational principles, innovating if you're like starting from scratch, and then if you, um, how you stand out, applying product thinking, and questions around strategies and tools and challenges. And then I will open up the forum uh, or floor for all of you to ask questions. So uh, uh, quick logistics. If you are using LinkedIn even for the first time, you may want to make sure your mic is working and then you raise your hand and I'll invite you to the stage and that's when you can unmute and uh, ask questions. So with that, I will get started. 
so thanks, Nancy, for a nice introduction. I uh, would love to dive into the topic. My first section is foundational principles. So uh, my first question to you is, can you explain the most uh, crucial principles of product thinking and how they differ from traditional product development methodologies? Um, so I have a question. What do you mean by traditional product development methodologies? Great question. So usually traditional product development, the way we think, okay, we are initiating, uh, like starting with why and who we are uh, solving the problem for, and then having a problem defined, and then you go about solutioning, and there are different ways like MVP, and then the approach could be like agile thinking, or uh, starting from scratch. So I assume that's uh, uh, like more of a traditional way of like doing things. Product thinking is a new norm. I keep hearing a lot and especially it's more prominent in interview. If you're interviewing at Meta, Google or LinkedIn, uh, however, like a lot of other companies we interview product thinking is not so much ingrained into those interviews. And I feel like there's a lot to learn and, even take that learnings into those forums. So that's where I'm coming from. So I would say product thinking is not different from traditional methodology, the way you have defined it, which is starting with why, mm -hmm. um, because product thinking is rooted in the why we have a problem or what the problems are and, and, really deeply rooted in user empathy. So that part is the same. I, I think the biggest difference is in the emphasis. So in traditional methodology, the way you have defined it, there's more emphasis in the how versus the why. And what that means is most product managers spend more time in building the product, as in they're operating in the what to build and how to build. That maybe they spend 80% of the time there. But if we're talking about product thinking, the emphasis is on the why and the what. So that's where the biggest difference is. And I would say if we're talking about interview setting, Candidates who have really who who have really strong product thinking, they will spend most of the interview talking about the why. But most of the candidates spend more time trying to solution, and they spend more time trying to segment users. So that would I would say that is the biggest difference is the emphasis on the why. Beautifully said. I completely uh, plus 100 on that. Um, I have been through that journey and solution is something very comfortable to many of us to jump into solution. But really uh, doing the why part uh, and the emphasis that you mentioned, I think is very, very critical. And it's very important. Any tips that you would like to share um, if somebody is more into solutioning or something that the person is easily get the solution and building, which is many of us are in that bucket. So if they have to uh, change their perspective and develop more why and the, then like invite the board. Um, so any tips how to do that? 
Well, first, I just want to recognize and highlight there is a very good reason why we are very good at solutioning and why we feel comfortable going there. And that has to do with the way we were educated. So if we think back to school, everything is about solving problems, starting from preschool. How do you solve this problem? How do you how do you get the right answer on this math question? Right, everything we have done since we were little is about problem solving. It's not about identifying what the problem is because our teachers give us the problem. And that is how we grew up. That is how we were educated. And this becomes a huge focus for people who have studied engineering or uh, having a technical degree. A lot of PMs come from a technical background. So we've been educated to focus on problem solving. And that's why we jump into solution mode because that's how we grew up. That's what we're good at. So I just wanna highlight that that behavior is super normal and common. And it has to do with how we grew up and how we were educated. My advice and my invitation for uh, folks who are listening is, are we able to step back and think just for a second, why is this problem important? And most of us can come up with a one-liner or two sentences to talk about why this is a problem. But I invite you to spend even more time after giving the first one-liner statement. Can you turn it into 10 sentences? Can you give me 10 reasons why this is a big problem? And can you tell me why this problem is a bigger problem compared to other problems? Right, we're just talking about problems and not talking about solutioning. Wow, you shared a very interesting perspective. First of all, the highlight uh, is something uh, very cool uh, to learn. Uh, never thought about that. I mean, of course, we know based on engineering background, problem solving is one thing. But it's interesting to know from the childhood, like as we mm -hmm. are trained, uh, something very nice um, like insightful tips you shared and eye-opening, honestly, and then <laughs> never thought back, like back, going back that mm -hmm. far. Uh, but it's also interesting to kind of, like when it is hard grain from that early age, mm -hmm. and then uh, how to unlearn and learn, right? I think that's very important. And some of the tips you shared, learning about like spending more time on why, it's kind of hard because uh, you won't be like, the mental frame is such a way like you're so hard green and unlearn yeah. and learn. So any tips there, like how to change that uh, or like how to practice? I know there's an atomic habit. Uh, I've heard a lot to start small and keep building. Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, the way I like to think about this is strength training uh, or preparing for a race. Right. It's something that we have to, let's say when we're preparing for a race or if you're if you're an athlete, then you can embody the spirit of 
preparing for a race. If you're a musician, then you could embody the spirit of preparing for a recital or preparing for a performance. So that is how I invite, I would like to invite you all to think about getting better in product thinking. It's something that we should do in baby steps and something that we should practice uh, daily. It's kind of like exercising a muscle that has not been exercised before. So imagine if we started learning about problem identification instead of problem solving since preschool. Just imagine how strong those muscles would be if we started that early. But it's never too late, right? It, everyone has all the muscles that we need. Some muscles are stronger than others. And the way we get strong in an area that hasn't really been exercised before is to exercise that particular muscle. It's like strength training. Pick at that muscle, focus on it, and train every day. So questions that we could think about to help train those muscles could be, let's say you're sitting at your desk and you just take a second to think, what problem am I having right now with this particular desk? Why does this desk exist? What problem does this desk solve for me? And how might I improve this desk? You could do that throughout your day, pretty much. Let's say you're in your bedroom. Okay, how might I improve this bedroom? Who are the users that use this bedroom? What are the user pain points? What are the motivations? You go to the kitchen, you do the same thing. How might I improve this kitchen? Well, let's start with who uses it. Is it a bachelor? Is it a mom? Is it someone who throws a lot of parties? Is it someone who is very passionate about cooking? Who are the users of this kitchen? What are they motivated by? Where did it, what are their pain points? And how might I improve this kitchen for those users? So you do this every day. And very naturally, your product thinking muscles will get stronger. Well, beautifully, uh, you explained and the tips are super, super helpful. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I, and this is definitely going to be huge, I mean, beneficial for anybody who's listening to that and trying to learn. Uh, my question to you, next question to you, based on what you shared, could you like, so that we can relate and apply as well, could you share an inspiring example of a product or something that you have done uh, and you have leveraged the power of product thinking well and what made it stand out? Yeah, um, I would like to talk about uh, the product that I was working on when I was at Roku. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Roku is, it's a streaming platform. So it aggregates the different streaming services into one platform. And so it is basically a entertainment type of product. And the product that I was working on is actually not a very core feature in the Roku ecosystem. When we think about Roku, it's about finding the show that I want to watch and I stream it and I watch it and I consume the content. And then I've, after I consume it, then I go find another show to watch or another, watch another movie. 
right? That is the core use case of the Roku product. Now, what I was working on at Roku was finding a way to connect emotionally with the users on a whole other level. You can think about my team as the Google Doodle team. Are you familiar with Google Doodle? Do you know what that is? I know, but you can always uh, share. Yeah. So Google Doodle is this thing that appears <clears throat> on the Google homepage every now and then where the Google logo turns into something fun, something delightful, and something surprising depending on the holiday or depending on the season. And you don't know what is coming next. It's just this surprising and delightful thing that Google does. And it has nothing to do with Google search, right? It's very tangential, it has, it does not improve the core use case at all, but it establishes an emotional connection with the users and it improves the Google brand overall over time. So that was the product that I was working on at Roku. So similarly, when there is a season or when there is a big cultural moment, then the Roku homepage changes to something that is surprising and delightful and connects with people on an emotional level. An example of that is, I don't know if you are a uh, fan of Game of Thrones. Are you familiar, familiar with that franchise? Yeah. And are you familiar with the sequel that came after Game of Thrones? No, no. It's called House of Dragon. What's uh, it? No. What's it called? Yeah. So uh, there was a big sequel that that was released after Game of Thrones ended. And it took years to release the... No, it's not a sequel. It's a prequel. And... It was such a highly anticipated event that we knew to be culturally relevant and to be delightful and surprising, we should turn the Roku homepage into a celebration to celebrate that moment. So we released a brand new experience where there's fancy dragons on the Roku home screen and you could do, uh, you could participate in the movement. You can think about it as like a pre-party leading up to the premiere. Now this is very similar to Google Doodle. It's a celebration of a moment that matters, that is relevant just in that point in time and it goes away. So I was working on that product. And it was all about product thinking, which is how do we emotionally connect with users? And we, if we think about the core use case of Roku, there's a group of users who really just want to watch the show that they've been watching. And there's another group of users who might be open to exploring new ideas. And so we needed to release this product in a way that does not um, prevent people who 
just want to watch the show that they had in mind. But it has to be done in a way that really caters to the people who are open to exploring new ideas and new thoughts of how to engage with Roku and to be done in a very delightful and surprising way. Wow, that sounds exciting. And thanks for sharing this example. I can relate uh, with many of the things that you just mentioned, especially uh, how to make it more relevant and then the emotional connection matters a lot. I've seen that also in LinkedIn posts or feeds uh, when um, somebody is posting around like say Halloween, something on the Halloween lines. Um, and that kind of stands out because we are living in the moment and emotional connection is there. I think as we are building the product, we should have that emotional connection. And the way you could do that is definitely being uh, deep into empathizing with your users. What are their feelings? I think understanding that it needs a lot of psychology, I feel. and Yes, definitely. I would say psychology um, and product thinking go hand in hand. So for example, let's dig a little bit deeper on <clears throat> what we mean by emotional connection when Roku released an experience to celebrate the premiere of House of the Dragon. Now let's think about the psychology here for a second. Game of Thrones was probably one of the biggest shows in TV history. And the last season, the finale ended and it left the fans with all kinds of feelings and questions about the finale. And people wanted more. And they were told, oh, there's a prequel that will be released. It's called House of the Dragon, and it takes place years before Game of Thrones. Now you just wait for this, this uh, follow-up show, right? So fans are waiting, and they wait for years. And then finally, this highly anticipated show gets released. Right, so there's a lot of built-up anticipation and built-up demand over years that the fans have been feeling up until this moment. Now, with the premiere of this prequel, everyone is getting ready to see what the prequel is all about. Like, show me more dragons. Show me this world that actually had dragons. When, um, I don't know, the the Targaryens like ruled the, the world or whatever. So imagine at this time when people were anticipating the premiere and Roku throws a celebration on the home screen without you asking for it. You just turn on your TV and you see a shout out to this new premiere that will be aired in a few days. And you could join the celebration by watching the trailers, watching behind the scenes, looking at cool pictures of dragons, right? What does this mean to, to the users? Well, it tells the users that Roku is a fan as well, right? Roku is also anticipating the biggest show of the year. Roku is celebrating this moment along with the users, right? That's the feeling that we want the users to have. It's 
yes, Roku is a company, but Roku is a fan as well, just like you. Yeah, that sounds great. I think a feeling of like product, as we think about product, like we are definitely looking for a product that would help us kind of taking away some of the things like work to be done. But it's interesting to see like seeing the product as more of a uh, like a human or somebody like who can understand you really well and doing the job for you or like making bringing those exciting moments that will connect with you, like the emotional aspect. Mm -hmm. That's very beautifully said. Any tips of, uh, like if somebody is not, uh, like just starting with like building the psychology angle, and not many of us are wired towards uh, having great psychology, um, any books or any uh, podcast that you'd suggest or anything else that to learn and build those muscles as well. Um, I don't, I don't really know of a structured way because I was not educated in a structured way on this topic. I picked it up along the way and became fascinated at the topic of user empathy and also just naturally I I am an empath and for people who are not familiar with that term, empath, empaths uh, describe a group of people who can actually take on other people's feelings and feel other people's feelings. It's a level above uh, empathizing with other people. That when we empathize with other people, we could see a different perspective like oh I see where you're coming from but being empathic is a layer and a level above it which is I could feel what you're going through I could feel your pain or I could feel your happiness or I could feel your sadness because I'm a natural empath I'm just very naturally wired to to tap into why people feel a certain way because I I am feeling it in my body. And sometimes I don't know why I'm feeling certain emotions. It's because I'm feeling I'm feeling what other people feel. And because this is how I am just naturally, it motivated me to kind of go into this direction to really think about what are people motivated by and what feelings do I want them to feel via a service or via a product? And I actually learned a lot by listening to a lot of motivational speakers, not on the not on the topic of product development or product management, but on the element of uh, these motivational speakers really tap into people's emotions. So that's where I would start as kind of like the first place to to get re to to get more resources and to get educated or to to be introduced to this topic of establishing an emotional connection with other people. See how they emo see how the motivational speakers are doing it. 
And that would be a good place to start. That's very interesting. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. If you know any influencers, you're inspired by, I think, following them makes a huge difference. Completely mm -hmm. agree with you. And in more of like, I'm more of a structured thinking person. So I was thinking loud when you were talking about this. These are great points are definitely something that any individual like me should uh, definitely go after and uh, learn more from these influencers or motivational speakers. In addition, I was thinking as a structured mind, I've seen like sometimes you do dog food, like you try your product yourself and then you feel the pain. A lot of time, like we're in the mode of building, 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 but we don't try ourselves. And then when you try ourselves, that's when you connect with people, the pain that others are feeling. Do you think that's a good uh, way to also approach this problem? Uh, so I would say definitely if you're not dog fooding you definitely should but one level above that is you should QA the product not just dog fooding because dog fooding sometimes we only touch the happy path we don't touch we don't cover a lot of ground when we're dog fooding but when we QA the product and we don't just QA our feature we have to QA the entire product. That is where you really feel what the users go through. And what's even better is knowing the other products that they use outside of our product. It might not even be owned by our company. So for example, uh, you use Slack and what is an adjacent product that most people use? Well, it's Zoom. Zoom and Slack. Most people use both of these tools often like throughout the day. How can we make our users' lives easier if Slack and Zoom work better together? Right, so that is how I think about dog fooding on a deeper level. Wow, that's a great point. It's, uh, I, I think the way I understood is more ecosystem thinking. If you're <laughs> thinking of uh, the product, great, great insights and tips. So um, my next question to you is in terms of strategies and tools. We talked about psychology, empathy, and a lot of human angle to it. Uh, solving like product thinking uh, for somebody who's more structured thinking if do you suggest any indispensable tools or framework um, I mean someone could use and implement product thinking uh, in their product development life cycle uh, I would say I invite you to first pay attention to how much time you're spending on the why versus the what and the how. First, I want you to, the, to do some accounting of your time and effort. And I want you to bring it to, let's say 50-50. 50% of your time spent on the why and 50% of your time on the what and the how. That would be uh, my invitation to you as a first step for someone who is very structured. 
Nice. Uh, I think that's a great point. And as you were telling earlier, like what are the things one could uh, use to build that muscle? And I think, uh, I mean, deliberately making a practice like 50% why and then dive into the how and what. It's not easy, but uh, sounds sounds like that's what somebody should do. And especially somebody who's in very structured thinking. Mm-hmm. And, any specific strategies that you could also suggest? I mean, apart from this approach, any other thing that would work? Start with looking inward and asking yourself, why do I do things this way? Right. So basically the muscle that we're training here is understanding the why, right? Understanding why users are saying this is what they need understanding why our company wants us to do these things, understanding why the goals are this, right? Why? And one way of training ourselves to better understand the why is to ask ourselves why. So for example, why do I prefer to stay up late at night? Or why for me personally my personal experience is at the end of the day i have to watch tv i prioritize watching tv at the end end of the day above everything else but why is that why do i do that why do i feel that way and what happens if i don't get to watch tv what does that mean to me what is that emotion that i'm feeling at the end of the day when i can't watch tv well, the emotion I'm feeling is I see TV as a reward. That is how I decide to reward myself. At the end of the day, I work really hard. I finally put my kid to sleep. I deserve to celebrate myself. And the way I celebrate myself is through watching TV. Right. So now that behavior is very clear to me why I do these things. And so my invitation to you is understanding why you do certain things or why you feel a certain way. That would be a very good place to start training your product thinking muscles is to start with questioning everything you do and understanding why you do those things and why you feel those way that way. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, like asking a lot of why I've read that many places, but uh, I think making into practice and being, I think, curious. And if you're trying to learn something, I think that's where a lot of why question comes, like the way children ask a lot of why when they're trying to learn new. And I guess something similar, uh, one has to adapt uh, and then ask a lot of why. Right. So um, a more relevant why that we can ask is why is measuring engagement important to the company, right? We take that for granted, but why is that important? Why is engagement such a critical metric for us to measure? Like, let's not just measure it for the sake of measuring it. Let's really understand what it means to the company. So for example, why is engagement metric 
whether it's DAU or time spent, important to Facebook. Yeah. Facebook's mission is connecting people. And how do we know if people are connected as a result of using Facebook? What well, we look at whether people are engaging with each other. And so engagement in this context is important because it is a proxy to how well people are connected with each other. Ideally, there is a better metric that measures connecting with people, but there isn't yet. That is very clear in measuring the connection with people. So let's use a proxy. The proxy is if you're facing, if you're using Facebook, and if every single feature on Facebook is about connecting people, then engagement measures connections. But it's a proxy. All right, so that level of asking why is first step in training your product thinking muscles. Interesting. Thanks for sharing this example. I think this is very helpful. Like when you talk about an example, then relating to why and what kind of why questions some can mm -hmm. somebody can ask. I think that's very, very helpful. So I have one last question where I will hold on to that. I'll open up the floor. If somebody has any questions, so I can invite you to stage and you can unmute yourself and ask questions to Nancy. Um, so if you're interested, raise your hand and I will invite you to the stage. Let's see. Seems like audience is quite silent. This is where LinkedIn can develop a new feature to play elevator music or Jeopardy music <laughs> while we wait for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very well said. And that's where the emotional connection Exactly. <laughs> okay, I'll just invite once more. Any of you have questions? Wide audience. Okay, I see Alina has one. Hi, Elena. <laughs> I'll just invite you. I just invited you to uh, yeah, go ahead and unmute yourself and ask questions. And Sweta, I will come to you next. Hi, Nancy. Good to see you again. Or you Nancy, too. Yeah, yeah, good so, to see you again. <laughs> absolutely. Um, very happy to be here. And um, very cool to be hearing like extra points about the whys and um, definitely raise so many questions in terms of why I do and like certain things. Um, the question I have is, so as you know, I recently went through an interview at DoorDash and um, there was a product sense interview. And while preparing, I noticed that um, the suggested uh, frameworks for the answer kind of differ. Like there's bits and pieces online um, then I listened to your approach and I listened to another coach's approach. And I started to wonder, where is the source of truth? Like who is really, um, you know, defining how this should sound like? And where is this all coming from? Is it just coming from all these companies like um, internally or there's a book or I know there's a school 
Like, where is it all coming from? Well, I wouldn't say there is one source of truth. And if you just look at the phrase product sense, what does it mean? Sense, right? The word sense means mm -hmm. it's knowing. It's a, it's a knowing on how product should be built. It's yeah. kind of like common sense, spider sense. There is no source of truth. It's a knowing. But how do you communicate a knowing? You can't communicate effectively if you say, well, we should build X, Y, and Z. You have to justify it along the way. You have to tell a story on why you think these features should be built. And the way you tell that story is through a framework. But there is no right or wrong framework. And there also isn't a quote unquote correct or best framework. Mm -hmm. Because the spirit is how do you communicate this sense of knowing? So from that angle, the best you could do is to break down your thought process so that the interviewer can follow you, follow your thought process, such that it doesn't feel random, such that it feels strategic and that it's rooted in user empathy. Got it. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, um, do you know like how long ago the product interview started to be shaped in this format? It existed back in, I don't know, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say it started when uh, management consulting was really, really hot. Mm -hmm. yeah. Got it. it started, I, I believe it started in uh, consulting case studies. Cool. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah that because I, I think it would really give a much better understanding of what is it that they're looking for and um, um so for those who don't know nancy actually has um, um group calls uh, for product managers uh, where they can practice and um it was um, a little bit funny that uh while practicing my case study we went through a certain uh, framework and then when I was answering um, at the interview, right in the middle of it, I realized that I completely went off <laughs> in work. And yeah, it made me realize that I still need to practice. Um, really made me think of you. Oh, well, thank you. I want to, I want to highlight um, this thing that I want everyone to anchor on when we think about product sense interviews. So at the end of the day, product sense is a proxy to understanding how, how you think as a product manager. At the most basic level, that's what the product sense interview is about. So let's go back to the basics and talk about what a product manager does. There's really only two things that a product manager does and only two. The first one is define the right product. And then the second one is work with the teams to build it right. Now, this framework was, um, I, I learned I learned this framing from Shreya's Doshi, right? So it's not something that I came up with on my own. But at the most basic level, 
product manager only does two things. One is define the right product and two, work with the teams to build it right. Now, product sense is, again, testing these two things. The first thing, defining the right product, that is where we are operating in the problem space, defining the right product. What makes a product right? Well, it has to make sense for the user and it also has to make sense for the company. Otherwise, this product would not be right. right? So that is operating in the problem space. After we define the problem to focus on, that makes the most sense for the company and makes the most sense for the user. Then we move into solution space. That is the second part of the PM's job. That is where we work with the teams to build the right. So then when we start solutioning, it's about, okay, what are the features that we could we could build to solve the problems that we defined up front? So similarly, in a product sense interview, there's really only two things we do in a product sense interview. One is define the problem. And then the second is how do we solve it? Both people jump right into solution or they spend more time in the solution space. But my invitation to you is let's do 50% problem space and 50% solution space. And then once we feel comfortable with a 50-50 split, let's do 60% problem space and only 40% solution space. Now, what if the problem space is 80% of the case study and 20% on solution space? That is how we could structure the product sense case study. Interesting. Thanks a lot, Nancy. And thanks a lot, Alina, for asking great questions. I have two more people in the queue, so I'll go ahead and invite with interest of time. Um, so, Ashley, I'm mm -hmm. inviting you first, and Deepankar, I'll go next. Good, Ashley. You can unmute yourself and ask question. Hi. Um, Hi. It's it's a blast hearing you, listening to you, Nancy. Thanks for all the tips and tricks. And I was wondering, sometimes, I mean, I love this product thinking and the product sense, asking asking why and understanding the emotions of the users and, and the value we're, we're creating for them. But sometimes the higher management may not be that much interested in the why they may be sometimes very stubborn in their solutions or sometimes the team is not very interested in the why they just want to build the solution so i was wondering any tips and tricks from you to create this product thinking as a culture within the company thanks yeah so have you heard of crossing the chasm it's a book written by Jeffrey Moore. So Crossing a Chasm really talks about how people adopt new technologies or how people adopt new ideas. You need to cross the chasm first before you can get wider adoption. And the gist of Crossing a Chasm is you need early adopters. And from research and from data from the past, data says you need about 12 to 13% of the people to be early adopters. 
before you could change everyone's behavior, before you could move the chasm. So this question is about changing culture and changing behavior in a company that is not yet product first, right? This company sounds like it might be solution first, which is totally normal. Um, for a lot of companies are solution first. And that's how these companies have been operating for a long time. And to change behavior, you can't expect that everyone will change together at the same time. The way we cross a chasm, whether it's product adoption or changing culture or changing behavior, is through 12 to 13% of early adopters who believe in a new way of thinking. And then you'll be able to cross the chasm. But first, you need to identify the early adopters. Thank you. Sure. That's a great insight, Nancy. It, it touched Thank me. you. Yeah, really touched my heart. I've invited Dipankar to go next. Good, Dipankar, you can ask uh, one question and then maybe we should head towards wrapping up. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Lina. Hi, Madhunita. Nancy. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, so, Nancy, great insights. Uh, uh, great uh, points that you shared today. So I have just one uh, thought I wanted to share and maybe ask your, your perspective on this. So you mentioned that for any, uh, uh, to build a minimum viable product or to have uh, the product which suits the company needs and the user needs, mm -hmm. we need to answer the question and focus upon more on the problem and the why aspect of the product, right? Why are we building the product? What are the features and all those things? Mm -hmm. So is there any like a set, uh, like a uh, the best practice to kind of brainstorm on what could be the potential features we could add in a product based upon a problem? Say, for example, if we are building a chatbot, like I work on the AI space, uh, ML space. So we build a lot of analytical products and solutions for our clients. So uh, one of my clients uh, want a, a chatbot where, uh, you know, we uh, put certain products, uh, questions, and the chatbot can give me solutions around what could be the uh, next best product it, the chatbot can recommend to the consumers. So like that. So how... According to you, how we can actually brainstorm these ideas? Is there any template we should be using? Or, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, I think uh, Elena also asked that, uh, you know, people are rightfully, they don't focus on the why aspect, they directly jump to the solution. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know your views on this. Thank you. Yeah. So in this example, your client brought a solution to you. Chatbot is not a problem. They didn't bring you a problem for you to solve. They brought you a solution for you to implement. So let's first highlight that that is what's happening now. You are asked to implement a solution. You are not asked to solve a problem. So if there's room and space to explore this a little bit further, then I would say why do they need a chatbot? What is the problem that they're having that makes them feel that a chatbot would solve their problem? And why is problem, why is this problem 
important to them? What happens if we don't solve this problem? So is it that they don't have enough humans to chat with their users? And why is that? Why do their users need to chat so much? What do their users need in order to achieve success as a result of coming onto their platform? What is blocking them from achieving that success today that they need to chat with a human or they need to chat with a machine? What is that problem? And what would happen if we don't solve this problem? How would that affect their users and how would that affect their company? I would start there. Right. Thanks, Nancy. That was very insightful. Um, we have six more minutes. One last call, if any last minute questions, any of you have, or else we will start wrapping up. Okay. Um, if you have questions, Nancy, what is the best way to reach out if you, if people are not able to ask you questions now? Um, easiest way since we're on LinkedIn is to find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> and and talk and me yeah that sounds great and uh you have a, a nice forum going on where you teach people about product thinking uh or product sense in general uh do you want to talk about it quickly if somebody is interested in how they can enroll to that program yeah thank you for for asking yes i i coach people on product thinking um, and helping them feel more at ease uh, in their PM career, which also includes uh, interview coaching. Uh, I currently have a group program uh, going on right now, but it is full. Uh, so the best way um, to work together would be through my course, where it's self-paced and offline, and you could um, watch uh, videos that are actual recordings from my coaching calls. So it's like working together with me in one of my coaching calls. So the course will be a good option um, to evaluate since my, my program is currently full. Sounds great. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, we have four more minutes. So I'll quickly ask one uh, like wrapping up questions with you. Uh, so what are some of the most challenging products you had worked on and how did product thinking play a role in overcoming those challenges? We talked about so far, uh, interesting success story, inspiring stories, love to know the challenge uh, side of the thing when it comes to product thinking. Yeah, to me, B2B is very hard. And that's because I don't understand the problem. And that makes it really hard. I don't understand a B2B user's motivation. I don't understand a B2B user's use case. So I used to work at Oracle and we were building a procurement software. And procurement software is used for buyers and suppliers. Yes, I could try to understand their problem on a superficial level, but I don't live and breathe supplier issues, or I don't live and breathe buyer's issues. 
And that for me was very hard, not because the workflow is hard to understand, right? It's not because the buying cycle is hard to understand. It's just that I don't really feel their pain. And if I can't feel it, then it's hard for me to be passionate. So that is why I find B2B products really hard for me, unless I am one of the users. Wow, that's interesting. Um, brought up a very good point, like passion matters a lot uh, to mm -hmm. connect with the field. So do, do you have any tips uh, if somebody is still working? Of course, uh, I mean, okay with the uh, product B2B space in general. Any tips you can give uh, to kind of uh, build that muscle or like how to overcome this challenge and still build a product thinking muscle? I invite everyone to really reflect on your zone of genius. When you're able to operate in your zone of genius at your job, your career will skyrocket. And I've I experienced this pivot myself. When we are operating in our zone of genius, Work-life balance becomes a non-issue. Working overtime becomes a non-issue. And that's because we don't mind thinking about the problems at work. We don't mind thinking about our customer issues. That's because we're operating in our zone of genius. And that is where work no longer feels like work. So that would be my invitation to you is if you don't know what your zone of genius is, really highly recommend that you take the time to self-reflect so that you become more aware of how you like to operate. That's very, very interesting and very helpful tips um, and very eye-opening too. I yeah. Think in, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. I learned so much in the last one hour. We are at time. So I really thank you to join the session and share these great insights and tips, which would otherwise we will not have access to. It goes back to a lot of experience and things that you have and you're sharing with all of us. That's huge. And thanks a lot again for coming. Thank yeah, thank you so much for having me. Love to. Uh, so thanks audience as well. Uh, and those who ask questions, making it very interactive and who are listening. Thanks for staying in the call and listening throughout. Um, so huge shout out to you as well. Yes. Thank you for joining everybody. This was so fun for me. Same year. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Until you. next time. <laughs> Bye. Until next time. Thank you. We'll wrap up here. Bye everyone. Bye.